Well, our uh, sermon text, uh, the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, comes from Numbers 9, uh, verses 15 uh, through 23. And here, uh, we, I'll get to it, but Israel uh, is at Mount Sinai, about ready to set off uh, into uh, their journey uh, to where the Lord has uh, told them to go, into the promised land. And remember, this is something, a promise that was given to Abraham. So before we read, let's pray uh, that the Lord would bless this time. Father, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would be with us. Lord, I pray that your word uh, would sanctify us in your truth. Uh, Lord, for your word is truth. Holy Spirit, be with us. Illuminate our hearts and our minds uh, to apply Uh, this passage to our lives, Father. May you stir hope and may you stir belief and trust in you, our only God and Savior. And so be with us and empower us by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we'll hear now God's Word, Numbers 9, starting in verse 15, ending in 23. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, The cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel encamped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord they encamped, and at the command of the Lord they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. Well, some of you may remember this, uh, some may not, but the moment Neil Armstrong's foot hit the moon, he said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Well, less than a year later, Jack Swigert of Apollo 13 uttered, Houston, we have a problem. Apollo 13 set out on a journey similar of that to Apollo 11. They intended to land on the moon. The journey was intricately planned. I mean, here at NASA, you have the best scientists, engineers, pilots, chemists, and the like. They all provisioned this journey 
just as they had for Apollo 11. Everything was checked, double-checked, and triple-checked. Well, at 55 hours and 55 minutes after launch, an oxygen tank blew up. They were 200,000 miles from the earth. I can imagine that is a problem. They peered out the window. Oxygen was spewing out into space. Their very life source was going into space. Electrical power was depleting. And as time went on, the gravity of the situation worsened. They had power problems, fuel depletion, water and oxygen uh, concerns. Carbon dioxide was rising. Heat also became a problem because of the power. And most importantly, the path back to Earth. What would that look like? They even had to traverse space without communication at some times. America began praying, and perhaps the world. The astronauts wondered if they were going to live. The uncertainty of the situation brought God into focus for many, both believers and unbelievers alike. And the question of many became, is God out there and will he help? In Numbers 9, Israel too was setting out on a journey. They, I think, some of them potentially had this same question. They had significant fears and uncertainties that lie that lay ahead. They didn't know the way. They were wild beasts in the wilderness, and they really had just bare bones to live on. And I think some, I think it's a fair question to assume that some on that journey ask, is God out there and will he help? You see, when life comes and the dark clouds come, these questions are normal in some sense, because things in our life, in our world, can seem so real that it kind of distorts the greater reality. But here, Israel's path is clear, and it's provisioned. Israel is encamped at Mount Sinai, the place to which God had brought them from Egypt to worship God, and here they also received the Ten Commandments. The tabernacle, as we see recounted in Exodus, how to build it, all that went into it, it's finally built. The craftsmen did a great job. They are ready, Israel is ready to lift off towards their journey to the promised land and to take possession of it. But as we know, there were many concerns, I think rightly so, that Israel had. They food their daily provision of food. Remember, they're in the wilderness. It's not like they had, could go out to a restaurant or to a grocery store. Uh, they also needed water to live. Uh, the report of the spies said that they were big, scary men in the promised land, uh, and that caused some fear. And they questioned Moses, his leadership. Is he actually going to take us there? How are we going to get there? All of these things came into focus, and then what would the time look like? And we know that because of their disobedience, it took 40 years to get to the promised land. But if we're honest, the root of Israel's fears and uncertainties 
are present in us too. Though they are different, the same fear and uncertainties that life brings reside within us. Life's journey weaves and it warps, and sometimes it warps to the point of breaking. And it's in these moments where fears and the unknowns of life can drive us to disbelief that God will do what he has said and promised to do. Is God with us in these moments? So we're going to examine the text this morning by uh, a little different means, uh, looking at a series of questions and letting the passage and the larger context of the Exodus uh, inform the answers. So the, the large question that we're going to look at this morning is, why should I believe and obey God in life's fears and his uncertainties? Now, if you've lived long enough, I think it's fair to say that at least at some point we've asked this question, maybe not as a charge to God, but we've asked this question. It's percolated to the surface. So we'll answer this by answering three questions. And this first one, where is God? So let's look at this passage and see the answer to this question. Well, here for Israel, it's physically different than it is for us, but verse 15 says, The cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So this cloud, or fire by night, was persistently with this nomadic people of Israel. And what does it mean? And here we'll turn to the larger context of the Exodus to see what does this cloud and this fire mean to Israel? Well, first, as we just read in Exodus 14, uh, Israel needed to cross the Red Sea to even get to Mount Sinai. And uh, they needed to escape Pharaoh. In Exodus 14, as we read, the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. And then later in Exodus 19, it tells us that at Mount Sinai, there was a thick Cloud. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it with fire. These instances and what we find here in our passage this morning indicate God's presence. It was a physical reminder that God was present with the Israelites. He dwelled with his people. That was what the cloud represented. And also the tabernacle. You had two things that represented God's presence. And this is a physical presence. Anytime they doubted whether God was with them, all they needed to do was look up. They could see it during the day and at night. Thus, his promise to never leave them nor forsake them held true. And second, and in verse 16, it starts, So it was always. This demonstrates the perpetual presence of God. The cloud did not come and go. It did not, hey, you're starting out, I'm going to be with you. Hey, you're finishing up, the cloud is present. No, it was always. God's presence was abiding. It was unchanging, continual. The impending journey that they had before them into the wilderness and mighty cities to conquer, these all were ahead of them. 
And again, a simple upward glance would remind Israel, where is God? He is present with us. Third, this presence is a personal commitment. And how do we get that? Well, at Sinai, God met with Moses. There, he gave the Ten Commandments for his people. The Ark of the Covenant was within the camp of Israel. And all these things pointed to God's personal commitment that he had stamped his name upon Israel. His mighty deliverance of them from Egypt showed that he was personally involved and committed to what he said that he was going to do. Their good also was his glory. This promise and his fulfillment of it to bring them to the promised land was in view of all the nations. God is committed. He was committed here, and he is to us, to his people, for their good and his glory. He has committed to never leave nor forsake his children. We all long for security and relationship, and I I think uh, children are the most honest about this. Uh, Children have fears, sometimes rational, maybe a fair bit irrational, but understandably, they have fears. A child may be afraid of the sound of a fire alarm just because it goes off. There's great fear and great panic, even if it's a test. Uh, But, you know, perhaps there is actually a fire, and that is something to be a little bit more fearful Uh, A child born with abnormalities or uh, one who needs a life-altering surgery may fear what life is like ahead. And this is very hard, and it's difficult. Uh, It's a very rational and understandable fear. Will I ever get better? Will I be able to run and play? And then they realize perhaps they're not like normal children. They may need various sorts of aids through life. But the honesty of children resides in the fact of their open need of parental presence. When scared of the fire alarm, they're going to run. This is mainly for young children, maybe teenagers. But they're going to run to you and say, Mommy or Daddy, I'm scared. And what are they looking for in that moment? Are they looking for a lecture on hey, well, the fire alarm, you know, it goes off when it detects this amount of smoke in the air, da-da-da. No, they want your presence. They want to be held by you because presence means safety to them. It might be a minute. It might be an hour. For those children who have fears of something much greater, Perhaps that parental presence is for a lifetime in the midst of a hardship. But the thing here is that in these moments, comfort and safety follow the relationship. They follow the presence that these parents provide. Presence is almost the prerequisite for safety and comfort. They simply might ask in these moments, where is mommy or daddy? So the answer, or so we ask this question, where is God? These verses in this larger context show 
that his presence is perpetual, it's personal, and it's committed. Still, this question does persist in us because we encounter fresh fears in life and we encounter fresh unknowns. Israel feared not having enough food, not having enough water, what battles would look like in the land of Canaan. And this led them to question God's goodness to them, his presence. And while we're not nomadic, at least most of us, headed to Canaan uh, as God promised, evil, sin, and our own mortality do remain. And fear, suffering, and uncertainty can drive disbelief wherever we're at in our journey. Perhaps you've had a long battle with health or you have a chronic pain uh, that will remain for the rest of your life. Medical advice and medical options are exhausted. It might be some who live paycheck to paycheck. Where is our next meal going to come from? And we all know Murphy strikes at various points. One misstep, one thing bad happening in life can cause us to miss a meal, perhaps. Maybe it's the HVAC system that breaks, your car won't start, or there's some trouble at work that might lead to an unfavorable ending. All of these can drive us to the question, where is God in this moment? But the problem is not necessarily with our physical eyesight. These needs are real, and I I think it's okay to ask that question. It's not okay to charge God with that question. But remember that children keep us honest. Our greatest need is relationship. It's his personal presence with us. Those things are important, but of greater import is God's presence. And God never leaves us nor forsakes us. How do we know this? Well, we already saw in John 14, Jesus promised to never leave his children as orphans. A helper will come, namely the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10 tells us to encourage one another. This is another means in which we experience and know God's presence with us. Stirring one another up to love and good works. Our love to others expresses in tangible ways God's presence to us. And then we also see that the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism give us a sign, much like the cloud and the fire in Israel, that God is present with us. Across the entirety of Scripture, God goes to great lengths to dwell with his people, demonstrating that he will never leave nor forsake them. So we've seen that he is present with us, and he's gone to great lengths to do that, but will he help in those moments? Or is God like the present but unhelpful in-laws? So the next question that we'll look at is, can I trust that God will take care of us, take care of me on this journey? 
Well, let's remember the context here. This is the wilderness. This isn't, you know, hey, we're going to stop at a hotel along the way, you know, plan out our route. The roads are well paved, no potholes. No, they're traveling and camping where the Lord deems. In the wilderness, no running water, no grocery store, tents for shelters, uh, and wild animals uh, that not only threaten them, but also their herds. We're talking thousands and thousands of Israelites. This is no small task, no small undertaking. How will God provide? Well, first, let's look at verse 17. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, Israel camped. This means that God is leading Israel step by step. They don't have a map. Hey, all right, this is where we need to go. Let's, let's move out. God is leading them. That's how God is providing, one way in which God is providing for them. In the military, you must have a commander who knows, who has a plan, knows the way, and the end goal of the mission. Otherwise, you jeopardize all that are underneath your command. Well, God provides for Israel in all of this and in more ways. He not only perfectly knew the route, the end, the end mission, where they were going, and the journey, but his provision extended to the commands that he gave to Israel for instruction, commands that would ensure a safe and successful passage. Verse 18 says, At the command of the Lord the people set out, and at the command of the Lord they camped. You see, these commands were a grace to Israel. They were God's provision to Israel, and they weren't arbitrary. Hey, I'm going to take my people here and just kind of zigzag. These commands were from the commander-in-chief, God himself, and he delighted in his glory and their good. Another way that we see here that God provided was that he knew very intimately the people on the journey. They weren't some strangers or I kind of know them a little bit. He knew them. He knew their infirmities. He knew when they needed to stop and rest. And he knew their desire to be in the land that God had promised. God provided them food in the wilderness in the form of manna. Numbers 11 recounts this nightly provision. He also ensured that their flocks and their herds reproduced so they could sacrifice according to his command. And he ensured that they had specific instructions to worship him. They were not left to guess in any of these ways because the Lord provisioned for them. Everything Israel needed, God provided. And he did so in the context of covenant relationship. His name was also at stake on this journey. God dwelled with his people. His name was stamped upon them. He himself would ensure that their, meet, their needs were met, that their, they had the provisions for this journey. And we can think of 1 Timothy 6, which says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. 
God designed their contentment in the wilderness. Finally, Israel could answer the question of God's provision by simply looking at history and their own story. Their own story, how they could recall the mighty works of God. He delivered them from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And these people themselves saw how God opened the Red Sea so they could walk through. God's provision is clear and it's abundant for his people. Indeed, that's why Psalm 78 connects our hope in God to his works. Arise and tell them to your children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Your own life's testimony and the pages of Scripture make abundantly clear God's provision for our journey. And we should not be too quick to reduce this provision to certain areas in life, such as food or clothing, physical needs. I learned this quickly when I was in Afghanistan. I was at a location that was affectionately named Rocket City. Um, As you can imagine from that name, uh, we had frequent uh, rockets that would come uh, and hit Uh, various locations within uh, our fob. We didn't know where they were going to land. We had only a few hard stand buildings, which means only a few buildings that were hard enough to withstand uh, rocket impact and not go through. Uh, So really, we were pretty exposed to these attacks. And when the incoming rocket alarm sounded, we'd immediately jump to the floor or to the dirt And I would cry out and just uh, say, yell, Jesus, save me. That was my prayer. That was the provision that I needed in that moment. No one except God knew how that rocket and the people's journey on the ground would intersect, except for him alone. He was the only right one to turn to in those moments. And while our food and water supply were relatively regular, I learned a new aspect of the Lord's Prayer when it says, give us this day our daily bread. Yes, it is actual food and sustenance that we need to live, but it's also safety. And so I learned that, that I needed to trust in my Savior at all moments. And even if I would have died, it would have been in, place, in a place of intimate trust with my Lord. Now, I have that personal experience of when I trusted in the Lord and cried out to him on my journey. And so that's a personal testimony that I have, that I carry with me, how the Lord provided and provisioned for me in part of my journey. But an even greater way that I have not just my own testimony, but the pages of Scripture prove that God is at work on behalf of his people, provisioning what we need for life's journey. These things help us see with our spiritual eyes how God is providing for us. But at the same time, we know sometimes the clouds become so dark that it blots out most of the sunlight 
tangible realities can take precedence over the intangible spiritual realities that we need to hold on to. Though Israel literally had daily bread in the form of manna, going back to Numbers 11, exposes the human heart. The Israelites cried out, Oh, that we had meat to eat, as if bread weren't enough. You know, when we were in Egypt, we had leeks and garlic and fish and all these yummy foods. And now we're stuck with this manna. We may look and laugh at that, but we need to realize that same complaint, tendency to complain, resides in our own hearts. After the immensity of God's provision of rescuing, delivering them from Egypt, they questioned his provision, whether they would, he would care for them. Their disbelief disparaged God's perfect provision. And we too can disparage God's provision in a number of ways. First, we can complain about God's timing of provision. Uh, you know, it's taking too long, uh, especially in this culture that we're in where it's instant, everything is at the touch of a button. God, you're taking too long for such and such to happen. We can complain about the content of God's provision. Our heart is always disposed to more. It has an insatiable appetite for more, not less. Well, I know I have manna, but if I only had fish or some other delicacy, if I only had a bigger house or more money or healthier food or a healthier body, with these I would be content. But remember 1 Timothy 6, with food and clothing, we should be content. We can complain about the outcome of God's provision. Perhaps that initial pain has turned chronic, and the Lord has allowed in his great wisdom for that to persist. Or perhaps an injury did not heal as you want, or a relationship that mended in a way that you thought would be different. We can complain about the outcome of God's provision. You see, it, it's okay to ask the question of why, such as children do. Why does this happen? But it's not okay to complain and charge God. We need to trust in his provision, knowing that all things, because he is sovereign, work together for our good. We must build liturgies of life that foster a heartbeat of trust in our Savior. Consider your own story. Consider the works of God in the pages of Scripture. And consider your eternal estate of dwelling with God. God's provision is meant to draw us into deeper communion with him whether it's wrestling with that pain or that health issue or long-suffering of a relationship that didn't end as you had thought. Because as Romans says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that God helps us because he provisions every aspect of our journey. 
Let's examine this final question. Does God require, in this journey, does he require blind obedience? And what type of obedience does he require? Well, the passage clearly evidences that obedience is required. That's Israel's responsibility to be obedient. The Lord's command directed their path. Look at verses 21 and 22. Or if it continued for a day and a night when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued, abiding there, Israel remained in the camp. But when it lifted, they set out. To the Israelite uh, and I think to some of us, sometimes that cloud uh, for the Israelites maybe seemed to lift and settle at an unpredictable pace or schedule. They did not know where, where or when that cloud would set out. Are they blindly to obey this cloud? Well, first, the cloud abided with them. We already saw that this means the Lord's presence. So they were not blind to the cloud and the fire, both physically but also spiritually they knew the purpose of it. They saw the salvation of God wrought for them in Egypt, and this was the purpose, that they could worship God and that they would abide with God. Their obedience was in light of God's mighty works, his salvation that, that was displayed to all the nations God purposed obedience for relationship with him. This means that God ordained, namely the cloud and the fire, to be instructive to them. There's no question about when to pack up or when to move on. They were to set out in a certain manner, a certain order of march, so to speak, with certain tribes having certain responsibilities. Uh, They were to sacrifice according to God's command, and they received specific instructions on how to take the land of Canaan. And all these things, they had very clear instructions. So they weren't blind to the purpose of this obedience. They were clear, and they were purposeful. But why was this obedience so important? God's purpose was a relationship that ensured God's glory and his people's good, Israel's good. In verse 23, we see this interchange. At the command of the Lord, and they kept the charge of the Lord. This required both individual and communal obedience. They needed to observe with their eyes. They needed to observe closely what this cloud was doing, where the Lord was leading them. A moment-by-moment obedience. As the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The cloud and the fire were of that type. They pointed, though, to something greater, a person, obedience and trust in a person, God himself. And that, the purpose of obedience is relationship. So we find that Israel saw the purpose of obedience, and it required their whole heart. 
Again, the parent-child relationship can help us here. Children should be required to obey their parents, regardless of what outside these walls tell us. Uh, The fifth commandment is pretty clear on this. Parents should require obedience in a lot of different uh, matters. Uh, First, safety matters, like crossing the street. You will obey, and you need to follow instruction when I give you uh, something uh, for safety. Uh, Relational matters, this is how we treat one another. We're kind to them. We don't hit your brother or your sister um, because you're angry. Uh, Health matters, you know, shots at the doctor are good, uh, and they need to obey uh, in that, and they need to obey in uh, eating healthy foods, not uh, eating lollipops all the time, and in other life matters, uh, just basic life things, uh, keeping your room clean or uh, as you go about your daily life. For an adult, these all appear obvious. Well, duh, that's just what we do. But the child is on a journey of learning. They don't know these things. Children, this shouldn't be breaking news, but children do not come out of the womb obeying the fifth commandment. Uh, If you do have children that do that, please find me after, and I'd love to learn the secret. They need this instruction, this obedience, uh, because it teaches them something. It teaches them two things. They, they may ask the question of why do I have to obey, and that's fair, and it's good and proper, I think, to answer that question. Uh, but we want them to learn obedience, not blind obedience. So the end state of this obedience is twofold. One, it helps children live long on the earth. The fifth commandment tells us this. When we learn how to live as God uh, requires of us on earth, we do tend to live longer on earth by following his commands. Uh, They know how to live in good and right ways. So that's the first point. But second, their obedience purposes relationship. What do I mean by this? It means that it helps that relationship, not only with mom and dad, but it also teaches them and instructs them how to live as simply as a human being, as God made us to have proper and right interactions with others as they grow up. If you have a child who wants to be selfish all the time, they may not have many friends later on. So they need to obey. You know, and it was the same for Israel's obedience. God's law and his instruction to them were designed for them to flourish on the earth as God had intended them to, that it might go well with them. And it tended towards a healthy relationship with God. Throughout uh, the Pentateuch, we see blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience. But like Israel... We, and like children, do not wholly obey all the time. We may attempt to set out, so to speak, when the cloud remains, uh, to take control of a situation. I know how to better handle this situation. Or we may fudge obedience in one, quote, lesser area, uh, the means, in order that we obey in this higher or more important area, the end. 
So we can fudge the means in order to get to the end of whole obedience there. Sometimes we just appropriate or adjudicate priorities of obedience in our own lives. And this is common, and it's well known. Some sins are looked upon of like, oh, okay, those, those, are, those are less, those are more okay. You can get away with a few here and there. But these, stay away from these. But we don't find that in Scripture. God wants our whole heart, and he has been, he's instructed us in the way of obedience. But this journey of ours is meant to create an obedience to God holistically, our whole self, from the beginning, through the means, to the end. The beauty of our mortality, the beauty of our journey, whatever it entails, we can look at Job. The beauty of all these things is that it creates a dependence upon our Heavenly Father. So let's treasure, and I use that word intentionally, let's treasure the uncertainties and the fears that that we have because ultimately all of these things bring us close to our Savior and to deeper communion. We trust in Him. It cultivates a relationship with God. And here, even at Cross Creek, the disorienting journey of this past year and all that's happened may lead us to some of these questions. But God's instruction, his obedience for us remains the same. We are to love one another. We are to seek restored relationships and reconciliation. We are to go to great lengths to ensure this happens, to see unity in the body of Christ. And may each one of us in here continue to look upon and draw near to Christ and depend upon our Savior in the months to come. We can believe and obey God because of his presence, his provision, and his personal purpose for us. And this is clearest in Christ. And Christ, this is something that the Israelites were not able to see because we're on this side of the cross. In the Apostles' Creed, he was crucified, dead, and was buried, and he ascended on the third day and is at the right hand of God the Father. We know clearly God's presence with us. Christ, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God made his dwelling among us, as John 1 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Jesus tabernacled among his people, and he imputed his righteousness to us so that we might dwell with God forevermore. And in our journey, Jesus did not leave us as orphans, hey, go forth and do these things that I've commanded. But as we read in John 14, he left us a helper. And I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit has sealed God's people for the day of redemption. And God himself will ensure that the purpose meets its conclusion. 
God is able to make us stand. But the conclusion of all of this, of our journey, of all of what God is doing in your life and throughout the pages of Scripture, the conclusion, as we see at the end of Revelation, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for your mighty work uh, in Israel's life, Israel's uh, story. Lord, we thank you that you uh, are present with us, Lord, that all of your promises that we do find in Scripture uh, have come true, Lord, and those uh, which have not yet Jesus' return in this final place, this final time where we dwell with you, Lord. You've given us uh, evidence to trust in you. So I pray that wherever we're at on our journey, we would look to you, Lord, that you would use our life's journey, whether it's the moment that we have at Cross Creek or in our personal lives, that you would draw us into deeper communion with you for the sake of your glory and our good. And we ask these things in the holy and precious name of Christ. Amen.